Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. All right, I'll take it from here, Sunday school lady. So today we're launching into a new sermon series called Water, and we're going to be spending the month of July and a little bit into August looking at different passages from Scripture that have to do with water. And as you may have guessed, we're starting with Jonah today. Now, Jonah is one of those books that, that a lot of us know the, the, the basics of it. We know the story of the whale, but we're going to dig a little deeper and we're going to talk a bit more because there's something Sunday School Lady said that's really important to recognize Jonah isn't actually about the message he gave. It was actually a book about Jonah himself. And that's what we're going to focus on and talk about today. And as we, do, as we go, I just want to remind you again, feel free to join in on the, the Bible app and join into the event. And at a couple points, I'm going to have some questions to ask that I want to invite you to uh, join in on, and we'll talk about them together. And so the book of Jonah begins around 750 BC, and God speaks to Jonah, and he gives this this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I've seen how wicked its people are. Now, Nineveh, I got to talk about just for a second because Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. And Assyria is the nation that is the biggest enemy and the biggest threat to Israel during this time. And so Jonah is being told, go into your biggest enemy's capital city, and go tell them a message. So what does Jonah do? Well, Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. Now, Tarshish, which I can never pronounce right, it makes it sound like I I can't talk it. Let me just explain a little bit about geography for a second. So Jerusalem is right on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, and Nineveh is right outside of what's modern-day Mosul, Iraq. So it's further to the north and to the east. Tarshish is on the southern shore of Spain. It is the furthest west you can go while you're still in the Mediterranean Ocean. So what does Jonah say? You want me to go that way? Nope, I'm going this way as far as I possibly can. So Jonah goes, buys a ticket, hops on the ship, and starts trying to escape from the Lord by sailing as far to the west as he possibly can. So here's the thing. Jonah was given this hard task, and he ran from it. And so here's a question I've got for you to maybe think about. What is your gut response when you're given a hard task to do? Maybe it's you know from a family member, or maybe it's from your boss, or maybe it's something else where you're like, you've got this big, hairy, tough task to do. What's your gut response? What do we want to do? Can we sympathize a bit with Jonah of being like, no, I don't want to go to the capital city of my enemy and go and tell them about God. I don't want to do that. You know, is this something that maybe we sympathize with sometime? Feel free to respond through the YouVersion app. And so what happens is Jonah gets on this boat and he starts sailing with these sailors. And as they're sailing, a big storm comes up. Now, these are experienced sailors. They know how to handle a storm, but this storm is unlike anything they've handled before. And so they start realizing we're not going to make it. And they start taking their cargo and throwing it overboard, trying to make the boat lighter so they can stay up on top of the waves and survive. 
Now all these sailors are, are praying out to whatever God they believe in, and the captain goes and finds Jonah because he's sleeping in the, the hold of the boat through this whole storm. The captain goes and finds Jonah, wakes him up, and says to him, you need to wake up and pray to whatever God you believe in if we're going to survive this. And Jonah gets up and he realizes something. He says, you know, this storm is because of me. I'm trying to run away from my God, my God who created everything, who rules over the seas and the lands and everything in it. My God is the one who's sending this storm because I'm not listening. And so he tells these sailors, if you want to survive, there's a simple thing to do. Throw me overboard. Jonah says, toss me off this boat and you guys are going to be safe. And they don't want to, but they soon realize that is their only option. And so reluctantly, these sailors say, God, don't hold this against us. He offered, and they toss Jonah overboard. And immediately, the storm stops, and the sailors are safe. But what about Jonah? Now, here's the part that we all know of the story. God sends a whale, and he, the whale picks up Jonah, swallows him whole, and has him for three days. Now, I know immediately what we're all thinking. Could this really have happened? And over the years, over centuries, there's been tons of scholars way smarter than I that have debated and wrestled with this, and they've come up with all kinds of explanations, like maybe there's a different species of whale that existed then that we don't know about. I mean, the Hebrew word just has great fish. They didn't determine between a fish or a whale. They just treated them all as a big fish. Or maybe, you know, some people have theorized that maybe Jonah got sucked into the whale's blowhole and was held in its sinus cavities where there would be oxygen for him. And there's still even another group of scholars that think, well, you know, maybe God actually let Jonah die. But then when the whale spit him out, God brought Jonah back to life. I mean, God did it elsewhere. Why couldn't he have done it then? But here's the deal. Maybe God did some other miracle. But the truth is, sometimes on this story of Jonah, we get so focused on the whale, we miss the rest of the story. See, sometimes we miss the whole message because we get lost in the little details. Because in Jonah, the whole book is 48 verses long. Only three of them mention the fish. What about the other 45? So maybe something else happened. Maybe there was a whale. You know, and sometimes, you know, we wonder when we read scripture, well, what's the point of this being here? What point would they have to make it up if not? Now, I know some of you were at family camp with us, and when I came back from fishing that second morning and said, hey, everyone, I caught a 16-inch largemouth bass, but we didn't have a camera with it, most of you chose not to believe me. I'm only slightly offended by that. But here's the truth. If I had not caught that fish, and we're out at camp, there's no cell service, Howard and I didn't have our phones with us, if I was going to lie about the fish, it wouldn't have been 16 inches long. You know why? Because 18 inches is a master angler. I would have came and said, hey, I caught an 18-inch largemouth bass, which I didn't. I caught a 16-inch. It was real. You should have been there. It was great fishing that morning. But here's the deal. What purpose would it have been for the authors of Jonah to make up something in this story? You know, we don't know if Jonah himself or maybe it was uh, a disciple who was with Jonah wrote down the story. We don't know either way who wrote it down. But what benefit would it have been to lie and make something up? And besides, it's such a small part of the story. Even if we say, I don't know if I believe that, we can still just lay that aside and look at the rest of it. Look at the other 45 verses. But what we do know for sure about Jonah is this. 
Jonah actually gets mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. In 2 Kings 14, Jonah gets referenced as living during the time of Jeroboam II, who was the king of Israel. And the timeline works with who we believe to be the king of Assyria during that time and who Jonah eventually goes to. We also know that the three cities that are mentioned were real cities that existed during that time and were very populous and and full of people. We know that Nineveh was the capital at this time period. We also know one other thing that's going to play in in a little bit, and the fact that during this like 20-year window when we believe Jonah happened, the nation of Assyria was almost in a civil war. They were on the verge of, of a battle within themselves, and so Assyria was actually very weak as a nation. And so if there's any time when God is going to send a prophet into enemy territory to the capital to tell them about God, that's the moment to do it. Do it when they're desperate. Do it when their guard is down so that maybe there's a chance they'll listen to what God has to say through Jonah. See, the book of Jonah was written to send a message. And I don't want us to get lost in the did the fish exist or not question because we'll never get an answer to that until we stand in front of God. But let's focus on the rest of it. But here's one thing we do know. This is what Jonah 2 tells us is during his time in the fish or shipwrecked or whatever happened to Jonah, he prayed and he called out to God. Even though he was fleeing from God, this is what he called out. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble and he answered me. I called out to you from the land of the dead. Jonah figures he's given up. He might as well be dead. He says, I called out to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. Even in the middle of Jonah running away from God, fleeing, and whatever happened to him, he knew that God still listened. God was still there. And if we jump down to the last verse of Jonah's prayer, he says this in Jonah 2, verse 9, but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, And I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Even though Jonah has fled and run away, he's turning things around and saying, God, I'll follow through on what you've asked me to do. Jonah ran away, but he knew that God was still listening. And sometimes that's a reminder that we need. And so I want to ask this second question that we're going to come back to and discuss. What helps you remember that God is always listening? What helps you remember that he's paying attention, that he cares for us, that he follows what's happening with us? Now, however it was that Jonah survived the storm, he gets spit out on a beach. Now, he's on the beach on the Mediterranean, and no matter, even if he's at the closest possible point of the Mediterranean, the furthest east portion, he's still a month's uh, camel ride away from Nineveh. So he has at least a month, possibly three if he was walking, to get to Nineveh. He's got tons of time to choose to turn the ship around and say, no, God, I'm not going to. But he does. Jonah follows through, goes all the way to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, again, we said it's the capital city, and there's a bunch of smaller communities around it. And Scripture tells us, and the historians agree, that there was about 120,000 people living in that area. Now, in Brandon, Brandon's about hovering around close to 50, but if we count 30 minutes in any direction, uh, Brandon is about 60,000 people. So think double the size of Brandon and surrounding area. That's about how big Nineveh is during this time period. And so Jonah goes, and this is his message. 
On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Eight words in English. It's actually only five, if it's in Hebrew, what he would have been speaking to them then. He enters the city and he says this, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And here's the deal. 40 days doesn't mean literally 40 days, the way that the the Hebrew verb uh, is used in this. It actually just means in the future. At some point, Nineveh will be destroyed. That is it. That is all he says. He doesn't tell them about God. He doesn't give them some grandiose picture. He doesn't give them a metaphor or a picture of how they'll be destroyed. He just says, 40 days from now, you're going to be destroyed. Now, here's the absolutely crazy thing that I think is almost more unbelievable than the fish. Jonah is the most successful prophet in the whole Bible. He is the most successful prophet because here's what happens in Nineveh. The entire city repents of their evil ways and turns to God. The entire city. Right down to the animals. So the king of Nineveh declares this decree and he says everyone needs to put on their funeral clothes. Everyone needs to put on their clothes of mourning and while you're at it, grab sackcloth and put those on your goats and your cattle too because they're supposed to be in their funeral clothes. I mean, come on. Not only the people are repenting and saying we need to turn to God, they're saying our animals need to repent and turn to God too. And Jonah, all he said was you're going to be destroyed. He didn't tell them about God. He didn't tell them about God's love. They didn't tell him any of that. And he's the most successful prophet in the Bible. When God sees what they've done and how they put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. God changes his mind, says, I'm not going to wipe out the city. Now, what do we think Jonah would feel in this moment? We kind of feel like Jonah should be excited, like he finally went and did what God asked. He should be happy, right? No, Jonah is completely ticked off and upset. He, what he does is he actually he goes outside the city, he forms a little shelter, and he says, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch and wait until God destroys the city because what I prophesied, what I said about Nineveh being destroyed better come true. I mean, what's with this guy? Like, seriously, what is wrong with Jonah? He goes to this city he didn't want to go to in the first place. All of them, even the animals, choose to follow God. And then he's upset and angry about it. Like, come on, Jonah. Get your act together. Jonah should be celebrating. And instead, he's angry. So Jonah goes and waits and sees. Instead of following what he just saw as this amazing declaration of God's love and his mercy, even on people who don't even know him yet. Jonah wants to see them destroyed. Now, God is not done with Jonah yet. Now, Jonah is sitting on this, this mountainside overlooking Nineveh, and it's, it's an arid desert um, climate. It's hot, and he's, you know, he's built a little bit of like a lean-to shelter he's under, but, but he's pretty miserable. And he's probably only getting more and more angrier as the days go by and God doesn't destroy the city. And so finally, God decides to cause a plant to grow up overnight, this big vine with leafy branches that covers his shelter and provides shade to Jonah. And this is the only time in the whole book of Jonah that he is happy. He is happy that this vine grew to cover him with shade. 
to give him a brief bit of comfort and respite from the sun. That's the only time he's happy is this vine. Now, what happens next is kind of interesting because the next day, God sends a worm. And this worm comes and chews through the stalk of this vine. And the vine withers away and falls apart and Jonah's shade is gone. Anyone want to wager a guess on what Jonah's response is? Guess what? He's angry again. I mean, come on, Jonah, get your act together. He's upset about this. Now, here's what he had said to God about this whole ordeal. This is what he said, Jonah 4, verses 2 to 3. Jonah says, Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Like, this is some pretty strong language that Jonah ends with. But look at what he says about God. And I have a feeling that that we don't know the exact vocal tone that Jonah would have used as he said this to God, but I have a feeling that this was just dripping with sarcasm and probably some bitterness towards God. I know you're merciful and you're compassionate and you're slow to get angry and you're filled with unfailing love. Like, he's angry about these, these qualities of God that are wonderful, amazing things. And he's upset. So God is not done trying to teach Jonah. And so verse 10, God replies to Jonah. He says, you feel sorry about the plant, even though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? question mark, that's the end of Jonah. God gives this question to Jonah. He says, you cared more about that plant that gave you shade for one day than 120,000 people who didn't know God. Doesn't it seem like his priorities are a little out of order? God is saying to him, you cared more about your comfort for one day than you did about the lives of 120,000 people, even though they were your enemies. See, God didn't, or Jonah didn't want Nineveh to turn to God. Jonah wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. Maybe it's because he knew they were Israel's enemy, that he knew that eventually someday Assyria would kind of get their act together and they'd rise up and they'd come and they'd conquer, conquer the nation of Israel. But for some reason, Jonah was like, no, those people should be unlovable. But God said no. God organized this whole peace to bring Nineveh to repentance. See, God's whole plan all along was to love these people. Even though they were born outside of the covenant, they weren't Abraham's descendants, even though they lived far away and they worshipped pagan idols, God's plan was to love them. God's plan was to care for them, even though they're Israel's enemy. And in fact, 750 so odd years later, when Jesus comes and God steps into the world to to basically show the way to be in a deeper relationship with him, 
Jesus comes and he preaches this message that we call now the Sermon on the Mount. Really, it was kind of the Sermon on the Hill because there was no mountains where he was at the time. But he's outside of Jerusalem and he's teaching these crowds and he's telling them about how God wants us to live. And he keeps using these statements where he says, but you, you, your law, and you have heard this, but I say this. And he keeps expanding and building upon all the Old Testament laws to show what God is really calling his followers to do. And this is what Jesus says. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, if we read that back onto Jonah, if we say this is what we know now Jesus came to say, this was part of his message, that really paints Jonah in a poor light, doesn't it? He needed to love Nineveh. He needed to show care for Nineveh. Even though going there, he probably expected that he was going to get killed or persecuted or driven. The best case scenario in his mind was probably that he'd be driven out and told never to return. But what God wants is to show his love. Jesus says this, but I say this, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See, Jonah isn't a book about the message he gave Nineveh that they needed to turn around or they'd be destroyed. It's not even about the whale uh, and however Jonah survives his ordeal at sea. It's about this message to the Israelite people and to us today that God cares for those who are far from him. And so I want to ask this third question, and uh, if you're typing something on the app, it'll pop up on my screen here in just a moment. But how can we learn to love people the same way that God loves people? This is a tough question, but how can we learn to love people the same way that God loves people? And I'll give you a moment to kind of think and and mull that over, um, and I'll just see if if anyone's been typing stuff in. It'll pop up on my screen here. We're just going to take... Uh, about two minutes here, and we're going to talk about this. Um, so let's start with our first question. What's your gut response when you've given a hard task to do? Um, I think two of these could have been written by me. Um, dread and denial. <laughs> you know, sometimes we're like, I just don't want that task. Um, procrastinate, avoid, ignore. You know, and then there's someone who, who's a little more positive, says break it down and delegate, you know. Break down the task, delegate it out. Those are good reactions. Now, Jonah wasn't given the option to delegate. He was told, no, you go. You don't get to send someone else. But let's, um, Tristan's got a microphone. I'm going to get him to stand up. Uh, if you want to share something, just throw your hand up, and Tristan's going to bring you a microphone so that we can kind of all hear. But on this first question, you know, what's maybe some other quick responses? What is your gut reaction when you have a hard task? What's our default position? Anyone have some more thoughts on that? Tristan, what's your gut reaction when you get a hard task? (laughs) Delegate to your wife. Okay, Corey, what's your response? He put you on the spot. Delegate to him? No, I often make a list. Make a list. Yeah, that's right. Planners. We need planners. I'm not always a good planner. We need them. Let's move to the second question. What helps you remember that God is always listening to us? Remember, this is what Jonah talked about in his prayer when he was in the fish's or the whale's belly or wherever. What helps you remember that God's always listening? Maybe what's something that's encouraged you with that? I think um, for me, it's when I pay attention to like different things happening in our everyday life, like um, 
we we're planning a move here in a few few weeks and we were getting everything ready and like Corey was making a list getting everything ready of different things that we had to do and like we were well I was stressing about having enough time to get stuff finished and then I I gave my notice at work and then they said they're gonna send me home a week early but still pay me for the two weeks so it's like oh look you have a full seven days of no work where you can pack stuff and actually get everything organized so the fact that Things like that happen shows that to me that he's listening whenever we have different stuff going on. So. Yeah, that's not a solution that you would have thought was going to happen at all. Um, but yeah, God listens. And there's a, a, a comment in here I want to read out saying, when I see a hope come to pass that I remember worrying about and thinking about but I didn't pray for, I forget that God doesn't need formal prayers to hear and know my hopes and dreams and answer them. See, sometimes like that, we even forget to, to realize we should pray and ask God about whatever this situation is. But sometimes God just intervenes and responds in ways, and, and if we're not paying attention, sometimes we miss that, and we don't even see that God's done that, um, that he's responded to something even without us knowing. And so let's maybe talk about this third question for a moment. How can we, as a community of faith, or how can we as individuals how can we learn to love people the same way that God loves people? What's maybe something you try to remind yourself of or, or how you try to do this? Um, Tristan's just bringing you the microphone. Well, I always try to love my neighbor as thyself, and that helps me love other people, even though some people might be, you know, kind of, mean like and stuff like that i try to show them the love i'll smile at them when i'm shopping or out and people sometimes smile back but i think the long as i smile at them and let god show through me then that's how i do it Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's up to us to make the first move often even when someone's kind of might be a little prickly or or mean you know hopefully no one's actually tried to hug a cactus but you actually have to take the first step sometimes to show care, to show love to someone. Um, what else? What are some other thoughts? How do we learn to love people the way that God does? You know, that's, that's a very difficult one. When someone is hurting you and to pray for that person really makes you feel that God loves everybody the same way. And when you see the change in the other person, you know God loves them too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a big part to say. That's why Jesus calls and says, pray for them. Because it's very difficult. I would have probably argue it's impossible to hold hatred or anger to someone and pray blessings for them at the same time. I think we can, we can actually replace one with the other when we choose to pray for people who've hurt us. Now, I, I just want to throw a disclaimer out here. If you're in a situation that gets out of hand, that gets abusive, that gets something like that, God never says stay in that. Get help, step out to where you need to, get the space, get the distance you need. But one of the things that, that holds us back from loving people is sometimes when we hold unforgiveness in our hearts. And so we actually have to let go of that, not for their benefit, but actually for our own. And that's exactly what you mean when you say this is a hard task to do. You know, 
maybe we want to hop on a boat and flee the other direction sometimes when, when that comes up. Any, any further thoughts? How do we learn to love? Just over on this side, Tristan. I think sometimes it's important to remember, too, that like for every time that we have someone in our lives, whether it be a coworker, family member, friend, that is um, like hard to love or is being difficult or, or whatever, that um, someone's probably viewing you the same way at, at, the, at the same time. Like if you're like, if only this coworker or this boss of mine would change this one little thing about the way that they interact with me or how they, how they do their job or how they, like their, their relationship with you, someone's probably thinking the same thing about you. If, you. if they would just change that one thing, then they'd be so much e- easier to love. So it kind of is a bit of a humbling thing to realize that like, as frustrating as people can be around us, we're probably just as frustrating, if not more so, to, to other people at certain times in our life. Yeah, that's a, that, that's, that's a lesson we'd often rather not know. Um, but, but you're exactly right. Thanks for sharing that. That sometimes when we feel that someone is bothering us and offending us, you know, asking, have we offended someone else? Or maybe asking God to point out, you know, is there something I've done to, to harm or to cause offense? Like, is there something that we need to address in our own lives? Um, thanks for sharing these things, people. This is, this is part of how we, as a church, we believe that God um, speaks and encourages through all of us and wants to challenge each one of us to grow deeper in our walk with him. Um, and so thank you for sharing that. I just want to close with a, with a few little kind of wrap-up thoughts about Jonah. See, we need to remember that this book is actually about almost seeing Jonah as an example, of seeing Jonah as this example of ways that he kind of lost out on what God could have been trying to do. God still worked through him, but it almost seems that God worked in spite of what Jonah was doing, rather than Jonah getting to walk as a partner with God and be able to carry out what God wanted for Nineveh. And see, we can understand, we can sympathize with him. You know, he was scared. He thought that he would get killed or at best, you know, kicked out of the city. You know, he tried to run for his life. But even though God intervened and redirected him back and showed care for Jonah through this whole story, Jonah grew bitter when his enemy received God's love and his mercy. God was trying to teach Jonah that Jonah isn't the one who calls the shots. And just because these people were enemies of Jonah's people doesn't mean that Jonah could prevent God from loving them. And sometimes, you know, we may realize that in our own lives, we may have, you know, uh, an individual or, or sometimes it's a family member or maybe it's even kind of like a group of, of people where we're like, you know, we just don't like them. You know, maybe they're on the political spectrum more conservative than you are or more liberal than you are. Maybe they, you know, maybe they cheer for the riders and you're a diehard Bombers fan. Um, maybe, like, maybe there's all these different things. Maybe that we might say, well, that differentiates me from you. And, you know, by the way, God loves me and people who are like me more than God loves people like you. That is not true at all. That's the message that God was trying to get across to Jonah. And see, one of the things that I wish, I wish there was a fifth chapter of Jonah. I wish there was a way for us to see what happened when Jonah left, if he actually learned his lesson. When God said to him, you know, don't you believe that I should show love and mercy to these 120,000 people who are living in spiritual darkness? What would have happened when Jonah returned 
to Israel and started telling people, hey, this is what happened. I walked in, I told them they were going to be destroyed, and they repented. I wonder what that would have been like to recognize that, for Israel to recognize at that time that their enemy, that this pocket of their enemy in their capital city was turning towards God. See, this is the bigger picture of Scripture. Everyone deserves a chance to know God's love and His mercy, even if we don't want them to. God wants them to have a chance to know Him, to be in a deep relationship with Him. And so we've got to ask this question of ourselves. How can we be the people who will show God's love, even to the people who are difficult, even to the people who are prickly, the people that upset us? See, God's heart is always turned towards those who don't know him. And us, as part of the church, we get that responsibility of saying, how do we share God's love and his hope with others? What's the hard task that God's calling us to that we're shying away from? What's the hard task that we'd rather deny and ignore that would help someone else come to know him? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for all the ways that you try to teach us and all the ways that you show care to us. And even when we make mistakes, even when we slip up, you're still there with tender mercies and tender grace. And Father, I pray that you would challenge us in this area, that we would grow to be people that show your love in every aspect of our lives. Would we reveal your heart and your love, even for the people that we may think are unlovable or are distant from you, Would you give us eyes to see the times when we need to take a risk, maybe take a step of faith, take time to show care to someone, no matter how small it might be, but in order to show your love and your grace and your desire for everyone to know you. God, would you challenge us to be a community that seeks after you in this way? In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Folks, next week we're continuing this story. We're going to be, or we're continuing this series. We're going to be looking at a different story that has to deal with water. And also next Sunday, uh, Kids Own Summer launches for kids age two to seven. So I hope you have a great week and hope to see you back here next Sunday. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.